honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. It's like, I think I stayed clear from doing individual counseling with men just because of my own maybe adverse background. And so um, I go in there doing my best to be present and not let any kind of <laughs> negative thoughts go in my mind about fears that I have. So I'm actually um, growing by doing this. And so what I stay clear of is not allowing my own issues become evident or, or even, you know, felt. It's really important to me that my client feels comfortable. And that's pretty personal. <laughs> but sure. I, I want to always make sure that um, I walk in there knowing this is a human being, knowing that... Um, no one's going to hurt me and I'm not going to be a threat to them. And so I always make sure I go in there um, just totally in the zone of, I just want to help this person. Transference is tough and, and it's hard enough. And I watch, I watch uh, uh, people work with children and their child issues come up. Yes. Um, I have watched um, men work with, women and watch their mommy issues come up. Yeah. And I imagine uh, having been a man in recovery and, and going through the anger and depression of now of being 30 days sober off of marijuana and not having a drop to drink and just wanting to leave the world because all I am doing is being reflected the damage I caused it. And that anger um, comes out and a therapeutic environment is the safe, healthy place for your anger to come out. However, when you are a person who has dealt, has been um, on the wrong side of a man's anger, a man's uncontrollable anger, a man's uncivilized anger, and then now you, you are the facilitator of a therapeutic environment, how do you reestablish your own equilibrium so that you can help that person when you're reacting to a man's anger? 
You know, I think it's just um, a matter of having faith in not only my abilities, but I believe there's a higher power. I believe in God. So I just um, do my best <laughs> to remember that I am safe and that, um, and again, that this is a human being who needs my help. And so I think the most important thing I can do is just remember what my what, what I feel my purpose is. Man, woman, child, animal. I love animals. I'm really just there to try to help someone. And so I, I've had years and years of my own counseling. And I just always walk in there knowing, you know, God's got my back and I'm safe. <laughs> I'm okay. And if I'm okay, then I know that they're okay. Mind you, I don't go in there every time, uh, you know, feeling that. Because this is years of, you know training and uh, getting educated and and learning but there's always that little and this is so personal I guess but it's neat it's sometimes you need to be transparent right so there's always that little tiny bit of fear that might crawl in depending on who I'm about to close the door with but then I always go back to no I'm safe I'm okay and that makes them feel okay and I just treat them like my my fellow human being and I think that helps me a lot because transference is big in this community, but I've dealt with it for so long that I think, uh, I think I got it down now. There are facilities that work specifically with men, facilities that work specifically with women, a facility like mine, like Fire Mountain that does co-ed. Um, there are, specific requirements and needs when you are working with specific uh, groups. There are facilities uh, that work with transgender, uh, gender neutral, non-binary, and uh, they have uh, modalities, they have techniques, they have uh, certain ways that they are going to work with their clients. When you have a facility that is open to any gender and non-binary, um, then all that is taken into consideration with your interventions. And there's been often that my wife and I have gone back and forth of whether or not we should uh, become an all-girls facility or maintain co-ed, and we used to be a boys-only facility. And there are certainly a lot more um, boys' facilities and men's facilities in the United States than women's. And, I, and I'm curious as to why, and I'm curious as to what makes this work. What is, what is the magnetism of working with men? And through my, uh, my phone calls and looking to make connections with colleagues and stuff, I've met a woman named Julie who uh, works, runs a facility that is gender specific for men. And she's worked with men only and women only and kids only. And, and I want to get her take on it. I want my parents to hear what are the special needs. I wonder, is, does she think that if there's a war on men, does she think that the schools have, have developmentally um, set boys aside and are focused on how girls learn? Let's talk to someone who is specific in her intervention for good reasons. And in talking to her um, off the air, and you can see the off the air show over there on the, the Mental Health News Radio YouTube page. I want you to get her take on it because it's pretty fascinating. So welcome to this week's show. Uh, this one's called Boys Only. 
and we're talking to Julie Brandt. Great. Thank you. And thank you for having me on your show. Julie, thanks so much. And welcome. And I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm very interested on your any things. And I do have a load of questions. However, let's start with you. How did you, and I'll tell you what, Julie, and I'll put you on the spot only at about 98%. I won't go the full 100. But I always love to say, and every time we would interview a therapist, I would say, what childhood trauma are you trying to compensate for by becoming a therapist and helping others with theirs? Now, I won't put you all the way into that question, but I am curious as to why you chose mental health, why you chose addiction and recovery, and the different populations you've worked with. So tell us about Julie. Julie? Okay, okay. Great questions. (laughs) Um, You know, the truth of the matter is, I think that this field chose me in a way. I grew up in a in a in a household that um, there was a lot going on, and addiction, uh, substance use, domestic violence uh, were a part of the day to day life, and um, I I knew very early on that I wanted to help people. I, I mean, I, I've just always been that person, you know. Um, but I didn't know really uh, what I would do be with my life until my life became mine, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I think um, when my brother got hit by a car, my eldest brother, by a drunk driver, and became a quadriplegic, that, that really threw me for a loop. Um, and when uh, and I was a teenager, and and he spent five years as a quadriplegic. I, I was really resentful of people who were drunkards. There's nothing wrong with drinking. It's just the drunkenness. Um, so that was a, a tipping point in my life where um, I was more aware of addiction and what that meant. Um, and you know, the past of my childhood kind of set up the stage, but it was that, that really hit me like, man, what was wrong with that woman? And, and, and look what happened. And, and then you start becoming more and more aware. It's like when you get a, you know, a, a new car, all of a sudden you see it everywhere. Right. And How much of that single experience of your brother being hit and then coming a quadriplegic um, informed what you do? Cause you were saying that, that your environment, uh, had drugs and alcohol on a daily basis, but then to watch your brother suffer the other side of use and abuse. Uh-huh. Um, how did that inform and affect you? It made my uh, awareness just right in my face. You know what I mean? It was, um, it was a very loud uh, wake up call. Um, because when it's all around you, it becomes your norm. But when it hits you on the other side, it becomes your reality. You know what I mean? I do. Is he still alive? Is he still with us? No. No, my brother Tony, um, he died uh, a quadriplegic. Um, five years as a quadriplegic. Um, his, his injury was such that even his vocal cords were paralyzed. Wow. And um, and yet his mind was totally intact. 
you know. So um, I, I loved my big brother very much, and it just it, it changed my life forevermore. So yeah. now fast forward a little bit, and you're working with the people who do these things to others. You're working with the people who hurt others through their use and yeah. carelessness. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. That's what I mean when I say I think this field chose me. Um, because, you know, how do you do that without resentfulness? There's the other side, and that is that I, too, experienced addiction. I'm an, I'm an, uh, I'm an, adept, an addict myself. I hate that word. Uh, I suffer from the disease of addiction, <laughs> you know, because I really don't like that word. Um, it has a horrible stigmatism to it, right? And I'm like, I suffer from the disease of, dick, of addiction. Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that for years. I just thought, this is our norm. Hello, wake up, smoke a joint, <laughs> right? Hello, uh, everyone else around you is doing this stuff. You know, you're 11 years old and you're introduced to pot and you're introduced to cocaine and you're just introduced to everything. It's, it's your norm. Um, but again, there was something about that that told me this, this, this is not me. You know, what am I going to do? Uh, just, it just changed my life a lot. But, you know, okay, it's not all about sad stories, but my little brother, uh, Louie, uh, he died of AIDS. Um, and he was, a, you know, a, a wonderful man, but he had an addiction himself. So I had all these wake-up calls, you know, and um, I did everything I can to help my little brother while he was sick. I did everything I can to help my older brother while he was going through his illness. I just wanted to help. And I knew that my little brother, Louis, was a wonderful young man. But I didn't see anything more I could do but help him. And I just, I wanted to help everyone, his friends. All of a sudden I realized, okay, okay, okay. They're, they're, um, they're people who need help. I need to help him. And it just became a part of what I wanted to do. I just wanted to help those suffering. Because my addiction wasn't that deep, you know. He started using intravenous drugs. And I didn't see that as him being a bad person. I just seen him trying to find a way to feel better. So now you are running, working in a house full of men who are just trying to feel better. Yeah, self-medicate, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whether whether it's marijuana, which I love to call mental ibuprofen, or <laughs> when we're when you know when we're you know using very hard, dangerous drugs that are daily damaging the very things in our brain that these drugs are copying in our brain. Mm -hmm. Um, what type of program do you run? Is it, is it a traditional more 12 step 28 day program? Do you have something longer? What, what, what do you tell, tell us about the program? Hey, well, the program was, um, my vision and my dream 10 years ago, and it was originally for women only, but this year I decided I'm going to get my balance on. <laughs> I want to start working with men because, um, I felt the need to balance myself out and to really understand people. You can't just, you know, so you're only going to work with women or only children. You have to work with all people. So my program, I think, is very unique. 
uh, one, it's a home within a, it's a residential within a residential, you know, so it's not that stale environment where there's, you know, 30, 40 people running around and it's not, it's, it's a very warm environment. It's like a home from the outside. It just looks like a, if I might, if it's okay saying a cute house, but on the inside, there's a lot of counseling going on. There's a lot of love going on, a lot of acceptance going on. We're not a 12 step, but we do 12 step meetings. Um, I believe that not everyone, and I, I think 12 steps is wonderful, but not everyone is a 12 stepper. So what I do is I take them out to three, my staff takes them out to three 12 step meetings a week. And then we have a life ring meeting once a week and we have something called smart that way they have options because i think life um, isn't just um, a one-way road there are options and so we make sure that they um, experience them all so that when they do leave you know they could decide for themselves you know uh, we do a couple of the 12 step uh steps i, I guess you would call them um, i call them wise steps and like the art of you know forgiveness and doing the letters to those you have hurt, um, starting with a letter to yourself, a letter to that little child. I think that's important, getting in touch with the inner child. Um, we do, we're really big on nutrition, right? Nutrition and exercise is huge because um, the whole body has been affected by what these years of, of, of whatever it is you've been um, introducing to your body that doesn't belong in there. Um, so nutrition is really important to me. Um, whole foods, learning to eat properly, learning to take care of yourself. Exercise is really important. Every morning we start with exercise. So a lot of programs um, do a little exercise, but no, every single morning we go for a walk or a hike, an hour and a half worth. So that's really important. I think we've it's really kind of a cliche saying, because I keep hearing it out there. I'm like, hey, that's my line, right? <laughs> but um, it's kind of like a Western meets Eastern type of integrated medication going on there. Um, we are um, definitely, you're, you're traditional with a twist, I guess. Because there's- Do the, do the men respond to this? It, it is, it's, is, was it the same program for, for women when you were working with them and you just said, hey, let's bring men in and plunk them in? Mm. Or did you have to make changes? Oh, definite changes. Definite, I made changes. What were some of the changes you made? Well, I, I, got, um, I got this idea in my head that I should have more men staff <laughs> because I have mostly women staff. Because at my other place was uh, for women, run by women, you know, exclusively women, um, well, except for the doctor. Because I think women have to have a healthy um, relationships with men and not fear men. Um, and so the, the twist is, is I got more males because I believe males can really relate to males more than, uh, and I hope that's okay with you, <laughs> more than women can. And vice versa. I think that women, when they're by themselves, can really be themselves. And I think men can really be themselves also. Because when you put the two together, there's a whole different presentation that happens. Uh, I really believe that. So well, Let's talk about that for a second. Because, A, I agree with you. And mm -hmm. I purposefully run a co-ed facility to address those issues with kids. Mm -hmm. um, I love the experiences when... 
because we have the kids for a significant amount of time. So ultimately, the veil will drop and the truth shall emerge. Um, But there's a lot to weed through. And there's a lot of distraction. And there's a very ready... um, ready experience to avoid having to work on yourself when you can start making goo-goo eyes at (laughs) someone across the therapy circle with you and not have to fully engage. But we also have staff that recognizes it as a defense mechanism and addresses it directly in group in public. So I'm curious, uh, again, to the question of the how do the men respond to that when it's just them? What do you see that you don't think you would see um, if there were women in the room, if there were, uh, if it was a co-ed facility. Right, right. I think what I see, first of all, is um, on both sides, actually. But what I'm seeing um, is that uh, the walls kind of come down. You know, I don't have to act Mr. Macho right now. And I don't have to act like I got it totally together. I, I could just show a little vulnerability if it comes down to it. If we're talking about in a group or whatever, a a sensitive subject, I, I notice they can talk more, they could express more, and that takes a minute too, right? Um, for them to feel that comfort zone. But I feel that men and boys, because I've worked with thousands of youth myself, the same thing. Um, and it's not it's not their fault. I think the society has taught us to, to behave this way, right? Uh, men must be tough and men must, you know, show no sign of weakness. But when you put them, um, especially in front of women, right? But when you put them in a, in a safe place where they feel, they start to feel comfortable. We have a small place. That's another unique place. Is this, we only have six men at a time, if, if, if anything, because I don't like six men at a time. The smaller the group, kind of the nicer because you become more intimate and a little freer with your words and you develop trust. It's harder to to develop trust when there's more men or women in the room, you know? So I think it's really something that I've noticed is that after a while, they're able to really express themselves. I want to ask about that specifically, because that's something that's come up recently. Uh Um, in, in for a lot of things that is taking place, uh, this uh, neo woman's movement, which I am 100% for, I hope it lands and sticks and takes over, quite frankly. And I've run a lot of men's groups and done a lot of men's work through the years. Uh, and one of the things that I have seen emerge recently, and it's something that you just brought up, is that you know uh, men are willing to be sensitive and mm-hmm. emotional, um, but then when there's women in the room that can get shut down and you're not blaming the men, nor are you blaming the women. Mm-hmm. You're saying we live in a culture of, um, that, that raises us this way. And it's something that was very interesting to me where as men have been asked to be sensitive for many, many years to share how we feel and be sensitive is that when the sensitivity and the feelings are shared, we hear comments like, you need to toughen up. I just wish I could be with a real man. Where are the real men? Where are the strong men? Yeah. So I, I want to, whether that's true or not, what I'm really curious about is your take in working with men. Since you've worked with women, you've worked with both, you've worked with children, now you're focused on working with men. Do you think, do you believe, do you 
consider, is there a war on men? Are boys lost and forgotten? Is there, is there a war on men? Are men oppressed? Oh, yeah. I, I believe so. I believe that from the moment you're born, <laughs> believe it or not, I believe that men are just totally treated different. There are high expectations of a man. I think that's uh, a big part of why there's so much violence uh, when it comes. There's violence of both ways, men and women. But men, from the moment they're born, you know, you, you get this little girl and she's born and it's like, oh, it's a little girl. Oh. But if it's men, it's like, I got a boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> over your shoulder like a football, right? <laughs> and, and, and you're running with them quarterback right he's, he's gonna be a quarterback <laughs> he's going to be a baseball player whatever it is but he's gonna be tough he's gonna be rough and by the time he's two years old I'm going to work son you're the man of the house now huh. right so they're just born with that need that 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 in their ear you know you're a man you're a man no I'm two <laughs> I'm a baby I'm a boy you know, it's like interesting that. because you know, in doing all this work, and when, and when I when I had my daughter, my mom handed me a book called Reviving Ophelia, which is, you know, just such a powerful, incredible book and truly opened my eyes to the, the things that girls face uh -huh. um, from and, and, and I want to and I want to uh, speak to some of the, the parents who might be listening, feeling a little bit reactive to what we're talking about right now. But in no way has either of us stated that men are and women aren't men are there's a war on men but there's not a war on women we were just talking about men and I found myself wanting to say yes but women have to go through this and women have to go through that and that is absolutely true the, the oppression of women the the oppression of colored women I, I did the, the we're also just saying that there is an oppressive nature towards boys and one of the things that you brought up about about the kids and holding of holding them how they have to hold their shoulders and be the man of the house and you're we used to call my little brother rocky hockey you know when <laughs> he's two running around with a piece of wood and he's going to be a professional hockey player he's a brilliant third grade teacher now uh -huh. that we we look at the barbie doll and the amount of attention that barbie has gotten uh, because of her false imagery and re right. because of an unattainable body image. Yes. And, and through this, we have forgotten uh, He-Man and G.I. Joe, mm. you, who are dolls for boys. Right. And when you look at He-Man, there's not an ounce of body fat. You can see every single <laughs> muscle. He's wearing a loincloth, blonde hair and blue eyes, and he wields weapons. And I call it the James Bond theory that we all have to be James Bond. We have to handle our women and our cars and our liquor and our weapons and our violence. And even though we may answer to mum, we're still these rogue operatives who need nothing but ourselves and our wits to defend us. And yeah. when Daniel Craig took over the, the James Bond from Timothy Dalton and, and Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery, there was a lot of complaints for men. Hey, he's got feelings. What, <laughs> what, what the hell's going on here? Right. So it's, it's very interesting. We are talking about oppression, but we're not talking about it in comparison to others. What are specific men's issues that you see emerge 
when you're dealing with men? What are some of the repeating? Because both you and I know we work in the mental health field. And when a family's dealing with something, it's the first time anybody's ever had to face this. But when you work in the mental health field, you see patterns, you see things happen again and again, you see this is, this is the first time this family's dealt with it, but this is the 50th kid we've had doing this, and we've got some ideas about this. Mm-hmm. So what are the, what are the, the pattern uh, issues that you see that men are going through? Again, I, I take it back to the expectations from childhood. You know, they, they, they have um, that need to not show emotion, and yet they have that need to express emotion and they're not really allowed to. And so the only emotion they're really allowed to show is anger, um, that toughness, but underneath all that, they're crying. You know, when I have some, uh, especially when I'm um, having a one-on-one, I get a whole different picture than when we're in group. One-on-ones, if you, can, if you can get that client to really trust you, you don't have a man sitting across from you. You have a vulnerable human being who's been hurt. You have someone that is really just wanting to break out and, and talk and, and, and doesn't know how. It's almost like a language they weren't taught. And so what you have is someone that is kind of been silenced in a way, even though he might be the guy who's really loud and boisterous or, or not, because there's a lot of men who aren't. The point is, is they're almost conditioned to be non-human in a way. Don't show me those tears, you know, outside. Don't, 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 don't talk about that. You know, be a man. What does be a man really mean? You know, in, in my in my mind, and in, and what we teach is being a man is is being human. It's not about just being a tough guy, right? It's about allowing yourself to breathe. When you are dealing with men who are coming apart emotionally, what I know is that there is a point in recovery where it all starts to spill out. And the fear of it spilling out for the fear of not being able to control it or not being able to handle it comes up. And for masculine energy, um, and, and, and I don't mean men, I mean masculine energy, women yeah. with masculine energy, men with masculine energy. The concept of what can I handle is a foremost concept. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's in the prefrontal cortex. Can I handle that? Can I handle that? You know, can I handle a car crash? Can I handle a bear attack? Can I handle? (laughs) And the fear of all those years of the damage you've caused yourself, the damage you've caused your family, the damage you've caused your community start to come out. And there's a spin on what, what if I can't handle this? I remember having a young boy tell me that I can handle what I've done to myself. I can't handle what I've done to others. Um, how do you, as a woman, coach a man through that process? And do men respond to you or to female therapists? And do you think they respond better? So how do you, as a woman, how do you walk a man through the experience of that 
depth of emotional process? Again, I think it takes, um, I think it takes a special kind of counselor, being man or woman, that can capture trust within that uh, session from the beginning almost. You know what I mean? I, I think that men can really benefit from a female counselor um, because a lot of these men, not all, but a lot of these men haven't had the chance to be mothered, <laughs> to be nurtured. I, I keep going back to our childhood because I really believe in um, these studies that I've been reading about that I'm fascinated and really consumed with, and that's the ACEs study. Uh, but, you know, if you can show a person that you're not just a counselor, I'm another human being just sitting right across from you, you could trust me. I have issues of my own. We all have them. Talk to me. It's, you brought it's, you, you, you've just brought up this ACEs thing, and yeah. I want, I want uh, parents to understand what this is, because when you and I talked about this before, I had heard it. Uh, my, my clinicians utilize it, um, but I had never, I'd never heard it. I have never done it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, ACEs. And I went online, and holy moly. Holy there's, moly. <laughs> holy moly. So let's, let's, let's transfer over to the ACEs because you have, you've kept bringing us back to the childhood. What's going yeah. on with childhood? What's going on in childhood? And yeah. certainly you, you and I know therapeutically, uh, uh, therapists who do focus on the child understand the, the power and potential of therapeutically filling in those gaps right. with a prefrontal cortex experience that can bring the, the uh, you know, amygdala back online with a proper timeline and, you know, everything, everything that, that we get to know all that super secret jargon that parents are saying, right. what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. So let's break down ACEs because this is not just something that I think you can teach us about. This is something that everybody has access to and can learn something about themselves and their children about. Yeah, yeah, uh, great. <laughs> I'm excited already. Um, ACEs is probably one of the uh, nation's biggest problems, believe it or not. It's, it's, a, it's a threat to our nation. It's, it's something that is little known and yet it's been a, it's the study has been gone for what, 20 years or something. And it's like the, like a secret or something. I don't know what it is, but once you know, there's no going back. Um, ACEs stands for adverse childhood experiences. And it is a study that went on um, in 1995 uh, with a Dr. Folletti, uh, the CDC, the, Kaiser Permanente, um, and it's a, a study that went on with over 17,000 individuals um, who agreed to take these surveys. And the study is really simple and yet not so simple. Um, what it is really is, is basically what happens to us as children really molds us into who we become. Um, 
and it's 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 just a research that I can really really relate to um, and the studies are out there and yet it's almost like okay aces but no one's doing anything about it you know doctors know about it people know about it um, but it's resurfacing almost 20 something years later and it's starting to be more and more um, known not only in the United States but throughout the world so this study is about um, traumatic experiences um, toxic stress if you will and what it is is it the more experiences negative experiences traumatic experiences that a child has the higher the risk that they will have problems with addiction uh, that they will have problems with suicide uh, that they will not be able to focus or do well in school and the outcome is as adults it can even shorten life expectancy depending on how many of those traumatic experiences you are enduring as a child. So you can go online. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take this test about your own childhood. That's right. 10 questions. Ten, I mean, 10 questions. Yeah. And those who, ten, who doesn't have time for 10 questions? <laughs> who doesn't? I, 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 I you know, I, I think everyone should go on there. That's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And the higher the points, the score, the higher the risk. And so the, the, the benefit of knowing that as an adult mm-hmm. is what? Eye-opening <laughs> as to, oh, <laughs> that's what's going on with me. Holy crap, I've been traumatized. Right, right. And sometimes because everything in our childhood might have seemed of the norm at the time, right? Like we talked about earlier, this yeah. is the norm. Uh, all of a sudden you realize even though you always had a feeling that, oh my God, okay, I have this, I have that, I have that, I have that. Well, no matter, you know, no matter what it is, once you read them, it's like, oh, well, that's why I have this problem, right? That's what, that's who I am. Aside from just saying you're higher risk, does it give you any direct correlation? Like, oh, you answered seven of 10, you Uh should read page 286 in the DSM. (laughs) No, it's more like um, I hired seven. I mean, I've, I scored seven. I, I better start learning what to do about it. You can't really <laughs> uh, do much more than change whatever is happening, whether that is talking about your trauma, because part of the whole trauma is the secrecy. Yeah. The blame. We're only as sick as our secrets. Yeah, it's the blame. It's the, the, the guilt that you have that doesn't even belong to you, but it's more, if anything, it's the secrecy of it. So once you realize, yeah, you know, um, mom or dad uh, weren't really, because you don't want to tell those things. You don't want to say mom and dad were getting high all the time and everybody was at the party and this and this happened to me while everyone's home, right? One traumatic experience. I've heard so many traumatic experiences, it's amazing. or, you know, there was never any real direction in my home. Parents were always working, right? And, of course, we have to work. But um, it's a fact that if there's no one home, there's no direction, right? There is no uh, right or wrong, anyone really there to tell you, no, don't do that, don't do this, because we're working so hard. Because 
society makes it so that two of us have to work. So if two of us have to work, then who's watching our little one? Right. You know, that a question about, um, can you take this test for someone else knowing what they would answer because they're your own child. They're, mm-hmm. they're you, they were your mother. Now understanding you're not going to get the perfect results that they might get because obviously if they're secrets, they probably haven't told you all the crap they've been through. Right. But if you're wondering about your daughter, your son, can you go online and, and kind of answer for them to see what the results were? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, but you have to be one understanding what you're about to be answering, you know, uh, two, you have to be totally honest and three, you have to remember there are so many things you don't know. Honest because you might be the parent who's working and not home providing the direction or missed them when they snuck out and something happened at a party that you've just only recently heard about honest in that way. Honest in that way. But you know what happens a lot of times is because a lot of this is intergenerational. You start saying, wait a minute, I have that. <laughs> oh, wait, uh, this happened to me. Uh, that happened to me. Oh, and that happened to me too. And you start realizing in a way we're just repeating the cycle. And it's a great wake-up call because it's the chance for the parent to start understanding not only their child but themselves because it's intergenerational. Is there any risk of people, is this, is this the mental health WebMD? Are people going to go on in self-diagnosis or is this a pretty straightforward, simple 10 question that gets you to realize something about you and you don't walk in saying, I'm ODD, I'm OCD, I'm ADHD, but actually you're just like, huh, I'm struggling more than I thought I would. I, I didn't add all these things up. Right. Um, I don't think it's something that you could really start self-diagnosing. I have ADD because of this, or I have, you know, that. But it's like a way, it's just a, a, a um, it's almost like a, a light bulb goes on, you know? The question that we need to start asking, like even our clients, isn't, what did you do? It's more like, what happened to you? Hmm. Tell me what happened, right? And the questions, you know, they're not the easiest questions. And they can really trigger a parent, but they could also wake you up a little bit. Um, and, and the questions, you know, are, are pretty basic. But when you put them all together, it's a different story, right? It's like, okay, how many of you have had um, uh, one of your parents incarcerated? Well, that doesn't seem so horrible. Okay, so you got one there. Well, how many of you, uh, you know, witnessed a death of a, of a parent? And then you got two, right? Um, how many of you have been sexually abused, right? And then you got three. When you get past four, you are welcome to the club. You yeah. are an, yeah. ace, an ace's child. You have experienced more than most kids. Um, and that's, that's, that's what that questionnaire is more about. It's the score. What's your A score? Because we all have at least one traumatic experience. A traumatic experience could actually be you watched your dog run across the street and get hit by a car. That's a, a divorce. Traumatic, right. That's a traumatic experience. But a divorce, that, 
most people don't realize that that's a traumatic experience, right? And the pooling back and forth, right? A parent getting fired from a job and suddenly money becomes a high stressor. The parents are fighting. You're hearing it as a kid in the bedroom. There's a lot of yelling and crying the going fighting. on. Domestic violence. The domestic fighting, violence, yeah. Right. And, and some people don't realize that domestic violence is that dad's hitting mom, although that, that is a big one. Of course, but it could just course. be the constant bickering, the constant fighting, the constant yelling, the stress of no money. Just, you know, what happens is the cortisol gets released, which is what we all have to survive, right? You have that big bear thing beyond risks and wolves. Even the animals have it. So if our life feels like it's being threatened, we do the fight, flight, or freeze, right? Uh, what's happening is this cortisol is being released for our survival. But if the cortisol is constantly being released, then that's where the development of the brain, that's where the real uh, harm happens because that cortisol running constantly puts you in a hypervigilant state so that you're never comfortable, so that you're always ready to run, right? So if mom and dad are constantly fighting, you've got that anxiety going on, right? You've got that, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. And even if he never hits her or she never hits him, what is going to happen next? Right. Am I supposed to call the police? Am I supposed to run? Am I supposed to hide? And, you know? And it, one argument, two arguments, that's one thing. But when a child is living in that constant every day, and you could imagine, I'm actually a domestic violence um, a survivor of childhood and adult. Um, if it's every day, man, it, even if it's just arguing every single day, right? That's 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 bad for the child. And a lot of people say, oh, he he was he was outside. Or she was asleep, or it's just a baby. The baby's asleep. Well, the brain is constantly recording, right. whether you're awake or asleep, right? Do you have your uh, clients, the men at your uh, uh, home? I don't want to call it a facility because you're saying it's even a home within a home. Uh -huh. um, do they do the aces? Do you have every single one of them? Go I have. This? Yeah, I do my, um, the aces scoring with everyone right from the get go. So that nice. it's not so foreign. I don't just nice. spring it um, on them, you know, two weeks into it. I just make it a part of my assessment. And part of what I'm trying to do is, is, is get clinicians and, you know, doctors, counselors, use it. I mean, use it. You're asking all these questions anyways. And <laughs> you might as well. And, yeah. and, and you'll, they might lie at first because no one wants to say, yeah, I was you know, sexually abused or I, I was, you know, punched around or my parents, you know, aren't, you know, the parents that we all want them to be. Um, but you can tell also by, by body language. You can tell by, you know, their fidgeting. You could tell by their avoidance of eye contact. So you kind of have a clue. That way, if you're running a 30, 60, 90 day program and you start with this questionnaire, you have a clue already. You kind of know which way to go. You have like a map. And if, if you can get them to just answer it, because sometimes when they get to my program, man or woman or youth that I work with, they're already at the point of, I just can't wait to just say it, right? I don't know how to say it. It's a secret, but 
yeah, this might be my opportunity. Should I say something? Should I not say something? But the point is, is it's right there. Julie, what are, um, let's give parents a resource, maybe one of your favorite websites that you like to use and, and go to. Um, and then as we, as we wrap around to the end here of the show, I want to make sure, you know, if you're willing that, that there can be some contact information for you given out. And of course, I want you to, to give contact information for your facility should any of the families listening have a, have a young man who needs your particular special touch. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like ACES Connection. Um, there's also ACES Too High. Um, a book that I think is really amazing is called um, The Deepest Well. It's by Nadine Burke Harris. Um, she's a doctor who has now been elected as our Surgeon General. She is like, you know, a forerunner for ACES. And uh, she's out of San Francisco. That book is amazing. Um, just reading Dr. Folletti's research is probably where I would start. I, that's how I started. And let's let's say they want to get in touch with you. How would you? How would you? Do you take an email? Do you want a phone call? Do you want to take them to a, a website or a Facebook page? Oh, all of the above. <laughs> Great. Spill it. So, let's let's hear it. Okay, so you, our website is www.awiseretreat, all one word, A-W-I-S-E-R-E-T-R-E-A-T.com. Uh, I'm on f- Facebook as A Wise Retreat. And um, my toll-free number is 855-500-WISE, which is 9473. You said 1-800-855-WISE? 500-WISE. It's not 1-800. It's 1-855. That's a toll-free number, 855. Uh, and then it's 500-500-WISE, which is gotcha. 9473. I also have a book out. I'd like to plug that one in. Plug that book. <laughs> yeah. Do it. It's called In the Eyes of Innocence. Um, and it's was something I, I, I started many, many years ago because a therapist told me, if you can't talk about it, why don't you write about it? And just, just really quickly, uh, there's always got to be someone in your life that says you're good, that you've done something well. And when I was in the seventh grade, I was a tremendous little kid. <laughs> couldn't sit still, couldn't focus. And a teacher uh, named Miss Lewis... Who knows where she is today, but she came to my desk and slammed a ruler on my desk and said, Julie, sit still. And then she looked at me and kind of leaned over and she said, you're a great writer. If you would just sit still, you're going to be a great writer. And she put my first A plus down on my desk. It was an essay. And someone said, I'm good at something. Wow. And it was just that one person. I never forgot that. And so I'm a writer to this day, right? I consider myself a writer. Um, I have my first published book. I have a few other published articles out there. And that book is something I started many, many years ago. And, and it's about what happens in a, dis- I hate the word, but in a dysfunctional family, what parents sure. need to look for, what therapists need to look for, 
there was a therapist who told my mother, take her home. There's nothing I can do for you because she doesn't say anything. Well, you know what I say today is silence is the loudest form of cry that there is. You know, that therapist might have not, you know, may, may waited a while. Maybe we could have gotten somewhere, but he's take her home. There's nothing I can do for her. We had a clinical director once tell our staff and they got so mad at him, but he stood by it. He said, you know, because the question came up, I got to write all these notes for insurance, but the kid just sits there in therapy. <laughs> and the, the clinical director looked at him and he said, if you can't write a note based on the silence, then you're not a therapist. Oh, they were so angry at him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. But, but it's he the was loudest, it is the loudest cry, really. Julie Brand, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Parents, awiseretreat.com, awiseretreat.com. 1-855-500-WISE is the phone number. Check out her book, In the Eyes of Innocence. Hey, is this book on Amazon? Where are people going to check this out? Not yet, but it's uh, an e-book. You could drop it down to your Kindle. You can drop it down Perfect. to your iPad. It's out there on something called Smashwords. Smash words. Go to Smash Words and get In the Eyes of Innocence by Julie Brand. Common name spelling, Julie Brand, In the Eyes of Innocence. Oh, wait. Uh, oh, my God. I'm oh, yes. so sorry. I have a non de plume. It's under Julia Castle. Oh, Julia Castle. Okay. Julia, Julia Castle. And the Castle. No, the Castle is with a K. I'm always complicated. <laughs> Life is complicated. <laughs> Julia Castle in the eyes of in innocence, and that's Castle with a K. Right. All right, Julia. Thank you. This was awesome. You, you, I, I'm, I'm going to spill the beans. You said you were nervous at the beginning. It was phenomenal. I really, really, I could, I could feel the parents listening and writing down and going to websites while listening to you talk. This was excellent. Nice job. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure for me as well. Good. Stay on the line for a second. Okay. Okay, parents, all you moms and dads, everybody out there who's responsible for a young child, you know the rules. You're going to take care of yourself first. You're going to take care of your adult relationships second. You're going to take care of your children third, because in that way we do our best work with our children. Go take an ACEs test. Go to, uh, um, which say ACEs connection or ACEs too high, um, and, and do this. Look at your own life for a second. That's self-care, even if you're just doing it in that moment. You, you answer 10 questions and you go, oh, I think I need to talk to someone. Greatest self-care you could give yourself. And as you're answering them, you know as well as I do, you're going to be considering your kids, your spouse. You're going to look, you're going to think, you're going to feel this opening to emotional growth, to this opening and, and self-taught emotional intelligence is a real thing. Get with it. Get on it. Take care of yourself. Take care of your adult relationships. Nurture those relationships. Because then when your kid really goes into crisis, you're in the best possible space to handle them, to fix them, to help them, to heal them, to do whatever it takes to slide between them and the proverbial goalie net and block that puck with your body. To just be a good parent, you gotta be in your best space, not your worst. 
As always, I thank uh, Kristen Walker, the boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio, who's always a number one support of this show, and Daniel Cropper, my editor, whose hard work always pays off for me. Uh, and uh, if you want to see all of the shows on Mental Health News Radio, go to mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com and check out all the amazing podcasters that are there. If you think your kid might need residential treatment, and they're between the ages of 12 and 17. Look us up, firemountainprograms.com. Phone number is 303-443-3343. Do the free assessment. If we are not the right place for you, we will tell you because we want you to have best place for your whole family. And thank you, parents all, for making Beyond Risk and Back the number one parenting podcast in Colorado. And thank you, Australia, all my Aussie fans and parents out there. Thank you so much. I have no idea how, why, here I am, and I'm not going to try to go into some horrid Australian accent about shrimps on the barbecue. So just forget about it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say thank you, and Julie Brand, my guest from a wise retreat. Thank you so much. Thank you for your neat take and flavor on all of this. It's wonderful. All right, folks. I will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.